Our reading from the New Testament this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is." And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was up in Jackson County with Luke, and I got a chance to show Luke the land of my birth. I'm a Jackson County boy, and I grew up right next to the McKee Reformed Church, and I was a member of that church for quite some time, was even under care of the RCA as a pastoral candidate, and I have many memories of things that happened in that church, but none quite so vivid as what happened one evening behind the church. The church building sits just right in town, give or take, and behind the church there is a a creek that runs, and there's a spit of land not very wide between the building and the the creek, but just enough land that if you wanted to meet in the shadows of the night, if you wanted not to be seen, it would be the very perfect place to do that. And I was 14, and I was with somebody who wanted to make that kind of meeting. He was my best friend, and uh, he wanted to meet his drug dealer, who actually dealt marijuana out from behind the Reformed Church in Jackson County. Now, the reason why this particular drug dealer liked to meet back there was because he probably sampled his material way too much because he thought he was Jesus Christ, and it was a very familiar place to go. But my friend, who was buying his product that night, uh, he, he did not seem like he should be there because only about three months ago, he was telling me how he had, in his Baptist church, made profession of faith in Christ, and he had received baptism, and that was a big deal, and his whole family had, had really thought that was great, and now uh, he's buying drugs from Jesus Christ behind the Reformed Church. Now, 
I shouldn't have been there, but I was an absolutely ignorant 14-year-old kid. What do you expect? But I did afterwards ask him, you know, this does seem just a little bit, a little bit diametrically opposed to uh, what you've claimed has been significant to you. And my friend said, well, you know, I wanted to give my life to Christ because, quite frankly, I'm afraid of hell. Um, I, when, I, when I face God at the end of life, uh, if, if you don't receive Jesus Christ, you go to hell. And I don't want that. But now I've received Christ, now I've been baptized, and so now, and, and I'm using his words, now I have fire insurance. Um, I, I've, I've put my, my signature on the dotted line, I belong to Christ, once saved, always saved, uh, I'm going to heaven. It really doesn't matter what I do from here on in. Uh, after all, I'm not saved by my works. I mean, that, they emphasize that at my church. You know, you're not saved by your works. Well, I have, quote, put my faith in Christ. I can live like I want to, and I will go to heaven. Is that how it works? There are... A number of people existing now, and actually throughout all history, who have thought that's the way the Christian religion works, and quite a number of uh, our largest detractors, ours being Reformed Christians, have been Christians who believe we teach that's how it works. We have been walking through the book of Galatians, and Paul has been making a very strong distinction between relating to God in the first covenant, which is relating by your works, walking before him in total blamelessness, and relating to God in the second covenant, which does not have to do with your works, it has to do with the works of Jesus Christ, and putting faith in him, and it's not about your works. Paul has been been smashing those together and showing you can either have one or the other. And so the ear of flesh hears this message and says, he's saying it doesn't matter what I do. He's saying, I relate to God through Jesus Christ. I can live like the devil. It is a natural assumption of the ear of flesh. If you look at how the Apostle has worked with this elsewhere, say in the book of Romans, which Galatians is kind of an abbreviation of, uh, the Apostle has to, in that book, deal with it straight on. In Romans chapter 3, verse 5 through 8, and in chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. And why not say, quote, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. In 6.1 of Romans, he has to return to that again, and he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The next phrase in the original Greek is very strong, very sharp, and in a number of English translations, uh, they've actually 
translated it in a rather shocking and somewhat vulgar way, which is not the best way to translate it, but it does kind of have the force of it. Uh, the, the most accurate, straightforward translation is certainly not, but it has a, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? That's absolutely not possible. What is the matter with you? Kind of feel to it. But Paul would not write that. The Spirit would not lead him to write it if nobody was saying it. And Paul affirms that there are people saying it, that there are people hearing the apostles of Jesus Christ telling the world, good news, Jesus Christ has been crucified, he has taken the penalty for your sins, he has lived out the first covenant, you can be in him by faith, it's no longer by your works. Shall we do evil that good may come? The ear of flesh says, you know, that's not a bad way to go. I'm saved. I'm delivered. It's not about my works. I can party to the utmost and to blazes with morality. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the motivation that is motivating the false teachers in Galatia. If you look at a few references in Galatians, Paul lays bare why they're doing what they're doing, and it really doesn't have anything to do with uh, their concern for moral action from the Galatians. In chapter 4 and verse 17, we read this. Uh, They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. However you interpret that line, it's very clear that the false teachers are self-interested. They want the church to abandon the gospel for some sort of benefit for them, and if the churches turn to them, they will in fact become the focus of accolades. They will be the center of attention. They will receive whatever it is the churches are giving, and they want that. As we move into the last chapter, in chapter 6, in verse 12 through 13, Paul says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Here, the apostle gets to the very root of the matter of what's happening. At this moment in history, Judaism is a protected religion. Uh, It's made its deals with the state. It's compromised with the state. But it is accepted by the state, and so the Romans approve it. If you are a Christian, or as the Romans put it, if you're a follower of Christus, who they don't actually know who that is, uh, you are in a different religion, and the Roman government has not approved it, so you are a rebel against the state. Well, the false teacher's ultimate goal is to avoid the persecution that comes from the state. They want their religious body to be approved by the Roman government 
they don't want to have their goods stolen, they don't want to be thrown into jail, they don't want to lose their jobs, and, and, and this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to make sure that the Romans understand that Christianity is just another sect of Judaism, uh, and that'll get Caesar off our backs. So that's their motivations. But they easily could have used the argument. Now, you know what Paul and the rest of those apostles of Jesus Christ are teaching, and that leads to immorality. If you trust in God by faith alone, if you trust in the works of Christ and not your own works, you know what that's going to do? That's going to make immorality fly. It is going to cast aside all the walls of morality, and we are going to be in anarchy, and we can't have that. It's likely, though not a slam dunk, but it's likely that was one of the arguments the false teachers were making, because in this, the last third of the book of Galatians, the apostle will turn to deal with that issue. If we trust in the Lord by, uh, by faith, uh, and when we don't trust in our works, why would we do good works? Well, in verse uh, 16 through 18 of our chapter, chapter 5, Paul is going to begin to beat a drum very loudly. It's a theme that dominates the last third of this book. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and the, the S is capitalized, it's the Holy Spirit. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do, do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you look at the passage that is our focus, Paul mentions the Spirit in verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, again capitalized, it's the Holy Spirit, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Whether the false teachers are talking about it or not, the unsanctified, the unsaved, are going to hear it's perfectly okay to be what we today call antinomian, which means to have cast off the law of God, to not worry about morality. Um, it's not. But what is happening is not a matter of human works. It's a matter of the Spirit and what the Spirit does. Uh, there has been a numerous people in church history who have rebelled against what Paul is about to teach. He is going to teach that the Holy Spirit takes hold of the human life, that in Jesus Christ you cannot be free from the Spirit. The Spirit will produce fruits. Well, a number of people have said that is utterly dangerous, and I'm not going there because I want a moral society, and that won't lead to it. We could go to the British Isles in the 400s. 
And we could see a very dedicated, smart, talented monk by the name of Pelagius who looked at the Christian church in the world and said, I don't see a lot of difference, morally speaking, between the followers of Christ and the world. And I am utterly scandalized by that. I, I, I am ashamed for Christ for that. I cannot believe how immoral the Christians are. They're no different than the world. Pelagius would lead to a movement called Pelagianism, which is uh, a teaching that Christ, by his death, gives you the ability to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps, and now you can work the works of God and you will be accepted by that, because Pelagius doesn't want an immoral church. But he is exactly like the Judaizers, he's turning the church back to the law. John Wesley lived at a time when uh, unemployment due to alcoholism and social abuses was sky high, where families were shattered, men lived lives of wanton drunkenness and lust. And John Wesley looked at the Anglican church. He looked at the vaguely reformed, but having that teaching, Church of England, and said, you did this. In your teaching of the grace of God, in you teaching men to trust in Christ alone, you have allowed men to abandon their families and to take hold of demon rum and to live lives of debauchery. You did this, you people of grace. What we have to have is an emphasis on works. Now, Wesley kind of baptized that concept by calling it holiness, and holiness is a very good thing. But if you read Wesley, he is saying religion is a matter of God doing his part and then you doing your part. God built the bridge halfway, you build the rest of the bridge, It's up to you, and if you don't add the other part of the bridge into the chasm, you will fall. And where did Wesley's teaching come from? It came from looking at an immoral and debauched England, which claimed to be a Christian nation. Carmen and I were part of a a movement uh, back when we first met uh, that was called Great Commission Churches. It was a part of the shepherding movement. Uh, the shepherding movement was a, begun in the uh, Acapella Church of Christ, but it didn't stay there. It, it branched out into a lot of Protestant areas. And it was a movement that was started by clergymen, Christian leaders, who looked at their congregations and said, I preach every Sunday and I preach the holiness of God and my people are no different than the world. What can I do about that? How can I coerce them to live godly lives? And what was born was the shepherding movement. It was a doctrine among Protestant churches that said, uh, your pastor and elders are more than just declarative authority to you. They are absolute authority from God to you. And your role as a disciple 
is to obey them in everything they tell you to do. Like, where should you work? Where should you live? Who should you marry? Who should be your friend? Who should be your roommate in college? You are expected to obey your pastor and elders. They, if they tell you something sinful, well, they'll have to answer to it from God, but you will be exonified if you just obey your elders. Biblical teaching? Not in the least. But it's a desire to see a holy church. The shepherding movement went terribly wrong, and lives were hurt, and uh, it was ugly. But the motivation was, how do we have a moral church? Where do you think Roman Catholic sacerdotalism came from? The very heart of the Roman system of religion is that God has given to the church the sacraments. You have to come to the church and receive those seven sacraments from the hand of the minister. He's not going to give them to you if you're walking in sinful rebellion. So, to be saved, you've got to do certain works because the priest is going to demand them, or he's not going to give you the sacraments and you're out. Where do you think that system came from? Just rose up in a vacuum? Not at all. It came from ministers looking at a sinful church and saying, what can we do to make men work moral works? It is a scandal on Jesus Christ that the professing Christian is morally bankrupt What can I, the leader in the church, do with my gifts and graces by my hand to make Christian men moral? And it makes perfect sense to the flesh. The flesh believes if man is going to be moral, it's going to be by his effort. And if it's not by his will, it will be by coercion from an outside force. But men are to be moral. That last statement, men are to be moral, the apostles would not disagree with. There is nothing in Scripture where any apostle says, Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you can become better at sinning. It does not exist. And where the hint of that is brought up, the apostles denounce it in no uncertain terms. Jesus Christ did not die to make men more comfortable with sins and grow in them. In fact, the apostles tell us, Jesus Christ died to redeem a peculiar people a set-apart people, a people unto himself for the purpose of good works. So the apostles absolutely agree with all these other men, Jesus Christ wants to create moral people. How does that happen biblically? As I said, let's look at verse 5. It begins with the term we. But we, or for we. 
It's a contrast with verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And then what follows is a contrast, but or for we, we are separate from that as a people of God in Christ. We are not uh, uh, repulsed by grace. And we are not attempting to justify ourselves in the flesh. We are different from that. How are we different? Well, that's the rest of the verse. For we eagerly await. What does the, term, the terms equally await mean? Well, it testifies that there is a process from without, but not from the hand of another man. There is a process from without coming from God that is working within us. And it is something that we have to wait for. It is something that is a process. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But it is something for which we should be joyful, and we should be joyful as we await the process coming to a conclusion. Somebody outside of us in the spiritual realm, somebody in the heavenly of heavenlies, has the hood up on our car, and he is repairing and restoring and bringing it back to pristine condition, and we are awaiting that to come to a a finality, and we have the right to be joyful as we wait. For we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. In biblical language, hope is an assurance. In, in uh, colloquial English, if I say, I hope it doesn't rain on Wednesday because I've got a picnic I'm going to, that's very conditional. I'm, I'm not guaranteed it at all. I'm saying, you know, I really want that to happen, but I don't know if it will or not. But the, the biblical word hope isn't like the English word. It means something that I am absolutely assured will take place. It's different from faith because faith is something I'm assured of in the past. Hope is something I'm assured of in the future. So uh, I'm eagerly awaiting something, and it is an absolute assurance. It is a hope. It is specifically the hope of righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, biblically, there are are three ways the word is used, and they are all very much related. I'm not saying these are three separate things, but they are three ways in which the the scripture looks at righteousness. They are positional, legal, and actual. Righteousness, uh, just in a vacuum, means being right. I mean, the clue is in the name. If you are righteous, you are right with God, you are right with the world, you are rightly doing what God has called you to do, Uh, you are a piece of the machinery that is not broken, but you are a cog that is actually doing what you're designed to do. But in, in, in the New Testament especially, righteousness is seen from three different angles, one of which is positional. And that's what has to do with the death of Christ. Uh, you are 
sinful, right? I mean, there's nobody here who would look me in the eye and say, God has now made me morally perfect, and when people look for the perfect man or woman, they can look to me because I am just that in a bag of chips. I'm, I'm, I'm just morally right. There's nobody here that would say that, right? No, we're still sinful. But positionally, we have been put into Jesus Christ, and we are right with God. We are right with him because of the works of Christ. God sees us as righteous. He looks down at you, and he does not see your sins. He chooses not to do that. That is covenantal. He he has promised not. You are positionally righteous. And this has to do with the fact that you are legally righteous. Righteousness is a court term. When you stand before the judge and the case is made, the judge assesses whether you are in the right or not. Clue is in the word, righteousness. Well, there is a court, a heavenly court. God the king is the judge. He doesn't just relate to men legally, but he does relate to men legally. There is a a very solemn truth that all men will appear before the judgment seat of God, and God will pass sentence on them. Every man will appear before him, saved or not. But positionally in Christ, legally, God looks at you and says, you are legally ruled righteous. The penalty has been removed because you're not unrighteous. You can walk in freedom. You are not subject to my wrath. Thus I say from the bar. Thus I say from the judgment seat. And then there is the issue of actual righteousness. That is, living out the goodness of God, being right with God in your action, thoughts, and words, being right with man in your actions, thoughts, and words. The New Testament uses the term that way too. And it is the result of God's work by the Spirit. We're going to look at that in a second. But all three of these things are righteousness, and we wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, uh, that can be verbally interpreted in two ways, and they both mean the same thing. But um, uh, the hope of can mean the coming of actual righteousness. We are hoping for the hand of God to take hold of us and make us much better people because that's what God does. If I try to change my life, which I have done many times, I utterly fail. Now, I may fail in two different ways. I may fail in that I've decided that I'm going to turn over a new leaf and be a better person, and by three days later, I'm back to who I was because I don't have the strength to do that. Or I might fail in actually succeeding. I have chosen to be a better person, and I pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I succeed at that, but in my effort of flesh, I breed a whole host of other moral problems. Because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm better than everybody else, and so therefore I can feel smugly superior. That's fairly sinful. In my own flesh, I don't produce actual righteousness. But 
we eagerly await the hope of righteousness, which might mean actual righteousness God is working on us, or it could mean the hope of righteousness, talking about the fruit that comes from God having placed us in Christ positionally and legally, which would mean that it would be like a relationship of fruit to a tree, that a tree would naturally grow its fruit. If we are placed into Jesus Christ, we will naturally produce what righteousness produces, And so either way you take this little phrase, you're back at the same place. You are in righteousness, in Christ. You will grow in actual righteousness, but that's the fruit of being in Jesus Christ. There is a process happening that is not of your hand, not of your ability. It is the act of God in Christ, and it's specifically by faith which is the gift of God. There is nowhere in Scripture where faith is called a work. But there are many places where saving faith is described as a gift from God's sovereign hand. Take Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so a contrast is made, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Clearly, the apostle writing to the Ephesians makes a distinction between work and faith. We can go to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and verse 29. There, the apostle says... Uh, for to you it has been granted. So something has been granted to you. It's, it's not something you've worked for. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. So you've been granted that. You've been granted by the hand of God to believe in him. You didn't produce that. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So the apostle is talking about things that God graciously allows you, uh, and he is pointing out to the Philippians, it is literally a gift from God if you are allowed to suffer for the name of Christ. It is not a burden. You're actually being given a high compliment because God is allowing you to suffer. He's giving you the gifts and graces to make that suffering. It's actually an offering of thanksgiving to God for suffering for his name. Oh, and by the way, your very faith was granted to you. Or we could go to the book of uh, Hebrews in chapter 12, and there, uh, having shown us those who have received faith in chapter 11, we read this in the first couple of verses, verse 1 through the middle of 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the wraith that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Author speaks of the beginning of faith. You didn't create it, and you don't sustain it either, because what is a finisher? 
A finisher is the one who brings a work to completion. And so the testimony of Scripture uh, from beginning of end is that if you have saving faith, this is God working on you. It is not you working on you, and it is not a coercive minister working on you, and it is not some sort of psychological operation where men try to coerce you to be good. It is God giving faith. And Paul is making a a change here for the rest of the book, for the next third. Paul is going to emphasize that the man who has faith is a man who is touched by, held by, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does it all. He already began that in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he asked the Galatians, where did the changes come from you, in you? Did they come from doing the good works of the law, or did they come by hearing from faith? Isn't it the Spirit who did this among you, not the arm of flesh? Well, when we get into 5, we're going to read about the fruits of the Spirit. When we get into chapter 6, we're going to see uh, the Spirit at work in human flesh. This is Paul's answer to the question, why would Christians be moral? It's because they have had a supernatural change. Conversion changes who you are. Do you remember who you were before conversion? Some of us can't. Some of us grew up in God's church. We heard the gospel from the cradle. Uh, Conversion was a very gentle, subtle kind of thing. We were covenant kids. We don't really remember much when we weren't converted. If that's you, I envy you because it wasn't me. I came to faith in my teenage years, and I remember how I thought and lived before uh, conversion And oftentimes, when I have those memories, it's like somebody else's memory that's been downloaded to my brain. I remember it, but that's literally not me. Now, I'm not a morally perfect person, but I am utterly stupefied by how utterly corrupt and abhorrent that other Russ was. Uh, He's like an alien to me. I don't understand him. Uh, I look at my, my flesh, I look at who I am without Christ, And I go, buddy, I have no idea how you think, even though you're me. Well, that's what's happening. The Spirit changes people. The Spirit brings about faith. If you look at verse 5 and 6, it is very clear that in the Apostle's mind, there is an absolute connection between faith and the Spirit. For we, through the Spirit eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith, for, says verse 6, and the word for means because, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith. So this is a work of the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing? It's creating faith, but faith working by love. Most of the time when I preach verse 6, I don't go back to 5. And the reason for that is because my major point is I want to emphasize to people 
Faith in Jesus Christ is not just a mental exercise. It's not just a philosophy. Uh, It is a philosophy, and it is a mental exercise, but it's a lot more than that. It is a change of who you are, a transformation. Faith must work by love. Faith inherently has love. If you don't love God, you don't have faith in God. Uh, They're so intertwined that if you pull them apart, you, you destroy everything. Faith has to love God, and the love of God has to work. This was actually the early church's version of John 3.16. Today's church, if they want to sum up the gospel in one verse, they'll share with you John 3.16. And it does well. It's great. John 3.16 is kind of a summary of the gospel. The early church knew John 3.16 because it's in their Bible. But what really excited them was was verse 6 here of chapter 5. What is the the good news of, of the change of a person? It's that God gives them faith. Faith inherently loves God, and that love inherently works for the glory of God. So they would take them here, and they'd say, this is the gospel. And it is. But it's not complete unless you go back to five. Where does faith come from? Well, we're eagerly awaiting what the Spirit does. When we get to the fruits of the Spirit, uh, one of those fruits is love. Um, The Spirit works all these good things. Now, if you go back to the verses I read showing that faith was a gift from God, and, and if you're really thinking about it, you may be thinking to yourself, well, didn't he say that Jesus was the author and finisher of our faith? Didn't some of those verses suggest that the Father gives faith? Well, how can he be talking about the Spirit? Well, God is one. There are three persons, but there's one God. And where does the Spirit come from? Why is the Spirit in the world? Well, we proclaim on a fairly regular basis the Nicene Creed, which says, The Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father and the Son. So when you talk about where faith comes from, you can talk about it coming from the Father, you can talk about it coming from the Son, you can talk about it coming from the Spirit, because God is one, and they're all doing it. But at the the last third of Galatians, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is really in the believer, the Holy Spirit is really among the church, the Holy Spirit loves you with the unconditional love of Christ, and because it loves you unconditionally, it won't be satisfied with your sinful nature. The Holy Spirit will not let you go. The Holy Spirit will slap you around. The Holy Spirit will take you and mold you. It will make you love God. It will make you want to work the works of God. That's what the Spirit does. And so Paul looks at the false teachers and says, from the very beginning of this, you got it totally wrong. Christian religion is not about what men do. Men are like David. They make scheming deals. They lie. They marry more than one wife, even though they have a a perfect wife in Abigail. Um, they kill everybody so there's no witnesses left. That's men. 
David is often held up as a really good man, and sometimes he is. Let that sink in because he's not. The very best of men produce terrible deeds. But religion is about God. Religion is about what the Spirit does. Religion is about glorying God because God pours down the goodness. The Spirit is here. The Spirit is in you if you believe. The Spirit won't be silent. The Spirit will be heard. The Spirit will do what it will. Now, uh, I have oftentimes had kind of a love-hate relationship with the term love and the term good deeds because there are those who will jump off this sermon that I've just given and say, the pastor is absolutely right, the Spirit will do what it wills, and it doesn't have anything to do with the law of God, so the Spirit might lead me to do anything I darn well want to, and I can say the Spirit made me do it. Well, we have several times from this pulpit walked through the New Testament, and I have shown you again and again that the apostles define love as doing the moral works of the law. Now, they're not living to God by the law, but the law is holy, righteous, and good. God is holy, righteous, and good. The Holy Spirit is holy, righteous, and good. And if the Holy Spirit has hold of you, the Holy Spirit is not going to lay hold upon you to do things that are not holy, righteous, and good. Because God doesn't do that. The, the modern liberal who says, all I need is love, and then begins to put forward all the, the moral abuses of our age, love is God's character. God has expressed the essence of his character in the law. And you are saved by the works of Christ, and you're in the second covenant, but there is literally nothing about the law of God that is not holy, righteous, and good. It is not God-glorifying to commit adultery. It is not God-glorifying to worship idols. It is not God-glorifying to covet. Faith in Jesus Christ does not lead you to do those things. Rather, the Bible defines the good works of God as those moral works. And if you have faith, faith will love God and faith will work the works of God. Not because you're being saved by them but because you are in the grip of an all-powerful, holy God who will not leave you in the swamp. He will not leave you in the muck. God has a hold of you if you believe. God will be the author and the finisher of your faith.